You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. to episode 60 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm very well. Actually, no, I'm not very well, thanks, Val. I'm a little croaky this week, so I'd just like to apologise in advance if, you know, I'm a little husky and raspy around the edges. Sounds sexy. Oh, do, yeah, I'll just, you know, here, here I am. You can narrate one of those hot romances. Oh, fantastic. I might just, you know, re-record my answering machine message while I'm sounding, little, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Apart from sounding Apart from- like you should be narrating a hot romance, what have you been up to this week? <laughs> um, well, I've just been I've been writing and writing and writing. I've also um, I, I did a, a run through of my workshop on Saturday, my three hour oh, workshop yes. on um, you know writing with children, and it went so well. I was Woo-hoo! so pleased. So, yeah, I know it's like it's like you know doing anything for the first time. And maybe that's why I'm a little croaky talking mm. for three hours. I was exhausted. I had to go home and lie down afterwards for a little while. <laughs> but um, no, it was it was a great day and I had a great time. So I'm um, I'm really looking forward to um, Sydney Writers Festival now. I feel like yes. I'm I can do it. I can. I'm there. I'm ready. It's going to be awesome. It I've is got my be timetable awesome. set out. It's kind of a bit of an Excel spreadsheet, really. Oh, I was going to say, oh, are you going to lots of different things? Well, I'm planning to, but sometimes when the line's too long, I get a little bit annoyed uh, <laughs> so I certainly go to all of the things where I have a ticketed um you know entry uh but there are some of the free ones where I just find if it's raining and I've got to stand in the rain well it's on my spreadsheet but I might end up having a coffee <laughs> <laughs> so have you set aside a few days to actually just go and do the rounds yeah you? totally how fantastic yeah it's when it's good weather it's beautiful it's great fun it's you know gorgeous locations and um it's just fun it's a little bit cold but I make sure I've rug up and I bring food because the food situation there can be a little bit dire at times. Oh. Yes. Anyway. It won't be dire for me because I'll be in the green room. Well, there you go. You're going to have the fancy (laughs) stuff. I may have to. I'm going to have a lanyard. I'm pretty excited. I'm going to stand at the door and go, look at me, look at me, look at the poor people. I'll throw a sandwich at you. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Anyway. All right. So what are we talking about this week, Val? Well, we want to say, uh, we want to give a big shout out to a D.L. Craig. Um, and uh, D.L. Craig has a blog called Musings from Earth, and she has written a really good review of the podcast that she's listening to at the moment, and she names three of them, and they include So You Want to Be a Writer? That sounds familiar. Yes, I've heard that one. Another podcast called Dear Sugar, and another podcast which some people may have heard of called Serial. Oh, wow. So Look at us right up there. So in excited to be in the company of Serial. Thank, Thank you, you so D.L. Craig. Thank you so much. That's fantastic. <laughs> Very exciting. But um, let's get stuck into the, our links for this week. What have we got? 
Well, our friend Natasha Lester, who is, of course, one of the Writers' Centre presenters over in Perth. Hi, Natasha. Hi, Natasha. Has um, just recently been, she's had a great little series on her blog about how she, she's just recently, um, she's got a new book coming out later this year. She signed a new two book deal. She has written um, a series of posts about how that came about um, with her agent and all sorts of, there's some great information in it. But the most recent post in that series is um, answers to frequently asked questions about getting published. And I thought I'd bring it up because it's a very concise um little post uh, that really covers off a lot of the a lot of the basics and it's it's all the stuff that when you're when you've got your novel and you really want to get it over the line somewhere it's the kinds of questions you're asking like how do I find an agent do I need an agent yeah. um, do I send my work to a publisher or an agent first so there are seven common questions on here about how to get published and it is a, a, including how to pitch your work which I think is a great one to cover off because I think a lot you know the pitching or the selling of the manuscript is somewhere that a lot of people um, fall down. But I thought I would ask you, Valerie, yes. as someone who comes into contact with about 80 billion <laughs> writers a year, yes. you know, what is the most common question that people ask you about how to get published? I think the most common question, interestingly, and this is usually from people who I meet, you know, at writers' events or festivals or you know, book launches, that sort of thing, is they say, is it really that hard to get published? As oh. in they're expecting me to it's almost they want me to dash their hopes because uh, I say to them, look, it's not easy, but it's not impossible. Mm. And it's, I, I often get the follow-up question, which is kind of like, really, no, it's, it almost sounds like a closed shop. I really should just self-publish. Shouldn't I? Shouldn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Shouldn't I make more money that way anyway? Shouldn't I? And I kind of like, I, I know that they're just expecting this validation from me to say, forego traditional publishers and go self-publish. And I don't give them that answer because it depends entirely on the type of book and, you know, your personality and so many different factors. Mm -hmm. And I do suggest to people, well, if you can go with a traditional publisher first and if that suits your goals, why not try? Don't try and elicit this answer out of me so that you can say, Valerie Koo said that I should, you know, self-publish uh, because I'm not going to give you that answer. So it's interesting that that did not happen five years ago. That was not the frequently asked question five years ago or the approach five years ago. But these days I'm increasingly kind of getting um, these sorts of questions where people want that assurance from me that, oh, it's a closed shop, which I don't believe it is at all. I, we know people all the time who are getting published. Mm. And so it's just been an interesting trend that I'm seeing th these days anyway. Mm, okay. How about you? What's the most frequently asked question to you? Oh, my, my most frequently asked question is always how do I finish the book? That's oh. always, yeah, for me it's always about, you know, I'm working on this manuscript, how, you know, I just, um, I don't, I can't, well, you know, I can't find the time. I don't know how I'm going to get it done. Mm. You know, how do I finish? So I think finishing a manuscript um, is you know, can be a very difficult thing for a lot of people and that they'll give up because they get, you know, X number of words into it and it all seems impossible and hopeless. And um, so that's what, the, yeah, that probably the most common question I get is just how do I, Don't how you do just, I get to the What's end? your answer? Isn't it just finish it? Yeah, you just sit down <laughs> and get on with it basically. <laughs> you know, well, you can imagine me, can't you? I look at them and go, well, you know, it's like people say to me, how do you write a book? And I'm like, <laughs> well, you see, I love that one. Um <laughs> 
like you sit at your computer and you write and you write and you write and you write and, and then you, you get some... up and then you kick the wall. That's what I do. And the then toilet. you sit down and you write some more, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like it's um yeah, I, I mean there's I mean when we did our interview with Charlotte Wood, you know, she said there is no substitute for doing the work and and there isn't, you know. It's at the end of the day somebody's got to put the words on the page and the only person that can do it is you. I, I, I honestly get the impression sometimes people would just really like me to do it for them and I'd love to, you know, give them a magic bullet that would make that happen, but it's not going to happen. It has to be you. Mm, so that's, yeah, that's probably my most um, closely followed by how did I get my agent? That's my other, the other question. I ah, yes. And th- that brings us back to Natasha's post about, you know, yes. looking for agents. And interestingly, yes. within the next couple of weeks, Natasha will be launching a course with us on how to get in, how to pitch to agents and publishers. So um, everyone look out for no, that. No. Yeah, excellent. Mm. Excellent. All right. So the, the, next, um, the next link I found this week, um, and I actually have two from this particular uh, website, which is called thebookdesigner.com. Mm. Um, which is by Joel Friedland, and it is a fantastic uh, resource for authors. It really is. There's so much information on there about all manner of aspects of publishing, from everything from book design, if you're self-publishing, you know, to how to, you know, from how to choose a cover and all that sort of stuff, all the way through to how to promote your book um, and that sort of thing. And this, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I couldn't go past this particular headline. So mm-hmm. this is where I went with this. This is a, along the lines of promoting your book, but the headline for this particular post is how I used Twitter to find a literary agent, grow my business and fall in love. <laughs> and it's by um, an author called Alexis Grant. But like seriously, like Twitter can answer, apparently can answer every possible requirement in your life. Mm. Um, and she then goes through and talks about, you know, ways to use Twitter to mostly promote your book and, and find a la- an agent. Yeah. Uh, and maybe a little bit there about falling in love. But so uh, it's it's quite an interesting thing. I think what she's trying to basically say, and I think that this is one of the most important things people need to remember about Twitter, is that it is about um, connecting with people as opposed to barraging them with tweets about yeah. yourself. Um, so she, you know, she just talks about, you know, having manners, like treating others like you'd like to be treated. She does talk about the importance of having a plan that, you know, going like wandering onto Twitter and just sort of faffing about is not really probably going to be particularly useful use of your time. Yes. Um, so she talks about ways to be strategic with Twitter, which I think if you're someone who is hoping to use Twitter as a way to um, to help promote your book is definitely worth reading. Um, but she also talks about the importance of being yourself mm. and this business of, you know, I, I do see people who sort of seem to construct a writer personality for themselves mm. or Twitter. And I, I just feel like that, that must be um, quite an exhausting business because I, I just, I, I think basically you go on there and you be, you know, you need to be a good version of yourself, yeah. like the best version of yourself, but be yourself, you know, don't, I mean, I don't go on there and tweet about cats, even though cats are incredibly popular on Twitter and on the internet. I don't do it because cats are not my thing. Well, I However, do talk I about We'll put up pictures of my dog. <laughs> I am not beyond that, yeah. I know you tweet about cats. I do tweet about cats. And as a result of that, one of Australia's most, well, Australia's best celebrity photographer uh, came to my house yesterday and did a photo shoot with my cats. There you go. <laughs> See? And your cats are now going to be international superstars. International we, superstars. We should probably get them a YouTube channel. I what think so. Oh, you think they don't already have one? Oh, 
<laughs> you know what? Nothing would surprise me. But having said that, I will add that I got my last book deal through Twitter as well. Well, and we know Kerry Sackfield got her first book deal through Twitter. Yeah. She met her agent through Twitter. And yeah. I know several couples who fell in love on Twitter. Yes. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a great place for all of these life goals. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And speaking of book promotion and life goals, yes. the, uh, the second link that I want to share off the book designer is, a, is another, it's another guest post by um, an author called Stuart Horwitz. And it's called, it's five tips for going on an offline book tour. Mm. And I think that there's a lot of emphasis these days on, you know, online stuff, on organising online blog tours for your book and doing all that sort of stuff, whereas he's got five extremely practical tips here for organising your own book tour. And I found it interesting because um, one of the things he says is that you don't need a publisher to send you on a tour. You can organise it yourself. You don't need a publicist to send you on a tour. You just need to organise your own little kit to send out. And the reason that I found this interesting is that I do organise a lot of my own school visits um, because I understand the importance of talking. I like talking to kids about writing. I, I love you know, getting them excited. I got a fantastic email recently from a school that I'd been to visit where, you know, after my visit, all the kids wanted to do was write. They were all writing books and they were writing stories. And I I think if, you know, you go to something like that and you inspire, you know, even one kid to pick up Mm. a pencil, then I think you're, you know, my work is done sort of thing. But it's also a great way to talk about my book and for them to, you know, to be aware of it. And I don't wait for people to organise it for me. And lots of people will. I remember getting an email from, from an author once saying, um, you know, how come you get to do so many school visits? And I'm like, well, because I organise them myself. Yeah. You know, I ring the school and say, here I am. Mm. Um, and that's basically what Stuart's saying um, is that if you if you do want to do that sort of thing, you want to go and do library visits and you want to, um, you know, have a visit in your local bookshop, you need to go in and say, here I am. Yeah. I'm willing to come and do this, you know. Um, do you, What do you think about the value of those sort of face-to-face um, I think it depends entirely on the book and yep. who the target market is. Absolutely. Because, you know, there's sometimes if, depending on the nature of the book and you're in the George Street Dimmicks or something, and maybe your target market, even though it's a that's a prestige address and it's great to have supposedly all that foot traffic, maybe your target market isn't really at George Street, you know, passing that's through. Definitely. I think it's what works with these book tours is making them very targeted. Yes. So, for example, yours is a perfect example you've written a book for a certain age and you're doing school visits you're not sitting in a particular you know bookshop hoping that people of that age or parents of people that age are going to walk by similarly you might write a book a business book on leadership again don't do George Street Dimmicks necessarily or school visits but but do a very concentrated event amongst you know with the Australian Institute of Management or something like that so I think that whole public book tour can be very hit and miss, Um, you know, when it's just sort of random random libraries and stuff like that. If you can target specific groups and organisations, I think it's really worthwhile. Yeah. And you have to – so it's you have to think like a publicist. Yeah. You have to think – about where your market, where your message is going to be most well received, and go to those places. Absolutely, because there's nothing worse when I've seen, you know, some people at book signings and that sort of thing where they're just sitting there and there's no one around. But that's mm. not because their book is no good. It's because they haven't targeted, or whoever organised it hasn't targeted the that particular event properly. Mm. Mm. That's right. Yeah. So um, anyway, so that's all my news on book marketing and stuff this week. But I, I did want to bring up one other thing, and 
that was uh, so the British crime, crime fiction writer Ruth Rendell died last week. She was 85 mm-hmm. years old. And I wanted to share with you a little moment that I had there because I'm actually, I have long been a Ruth Rendell fan. And I went into mourning not only for her, for the fact that, you know, she, she wrote 60 best selling thrillers, she was an amazing and prolific author. But I also went into mourning a little bit for her characters. Mm. Um, so Inspector Wexford was one of my favourite, you know, police procedural uh, characters. So I've, I think it's interesting that when an author dies like that, there is a certain sense of there will not be any more of those books. So the character dies as well. And mm. I had the same feeling last year when P.D. James died. Again, she was a, a British crime author. Um, and one of her characters was Adam Dalgleish, who was a poet. <laughs> that used to work as a police officer, which sounds kind of weird, but worked really well. Um, and, uh, you know, when she died, I, I went into mourning for, for him as well. And I'm not just, you know, have you ever had that experience of of a, an author dying and a character dying with them? I, even though I've, you know, felt sad when certain authors have died that have meant something to me, I don't usually read series books. You know, even back when it was really? Sweet Valley High, I didn't really read any of those. What? I know. I, t- I, I read Sweet Dreams books, but they were different. But, but okay, you know, I, I read sort of – I read books from authors, but they don't necessarily carry on the same characters, interestingly mm. enough. Mm. But um, I suppose I, – I know I sound like really basic saying this, but <laughs> I suppose about three weeks ago I had a – quite a morning experience because I am Australia's biggest fan for the Fast and the Furious franchise. <laughs> and I have to say... That surprises me not at all. <laughs> and I was so in love with Paul Walker, who, of course, is the star, has been the star of the Fast and Furious franchise. That's up to its seventh movie. Mm. And I remember uh, teaching magazine writing, a uh, weekend of magazine writing in Melbourne at the Abbotsford Convent. And I had an incredible group of inspiring and dynamic, just an awesome group of students. And I was on this absolute high after spending two days with them and with their ideas and the things that they were going to do. And they were just, they were just really with it. And I just, with teaching, you know, you can come off on a real high when you have that kind of group. It's quite euphoric. And I, within 15 minutes, I happened to get on the phone with my partner he said I suppose you've heard the news and I said oh what news and he told me that Paul Walker had died in a car crash and I have never had such a plummeting you know low Mm -hmm. and I was crying and I went on the plane and I was upset and on when I finally saw the movie which you know I'm not going to say anything about it to wreck it for anyone but maybe no one's going to see it um, it was just the most perfect ending and I was just sobbing because that character will never appear again. Yeah, that character will nice. never appear again. I know it's not very literary. No, but that's how I feel about – that's how I felt. I've, you know, like you can you – can re- with the, the beauty of books and films is that you can revisit that character all the time, but there will be never a new one for you. And I think no. that that's what's very sad. But anyway, I, I'll be all right, thanks, and I'm sure you will be too. <laughs> yes. Um, rest in peace, both of them. Yes. <clears throat> so now, what have you got for us in the writing slash marketing book? Um, what, what what apostrophe book have you brought up? Got for us this week? <laughs> it's not an apostrophe book. I bought this. <clears throat> it's called "There Are Titles in This Title." 
Right. The Weird World of Words by someone called Mitchell Simons. And it's he's just obviously one of these books that I love. And um, it's just full of these little bits of trivia about the origins of words and um, the ideas behind some of the phrases and just weird things that will be really good if you're at pub trivia and they ask you this question, did you know that 40 – as in the word 40, is the only number that has its letters in alphabetical order? No. <laughs> no, that. And just 1,000 words make up 90% of all writing in English. No. Didn't so, know that. you know, just learn, if you're learning a language, just learn those 1,000 words. And I know that, you know, corduroy, like corduroy jeans and stuff, they get a really bad rap. But. <laughs> Well, corduroy gets a bad rap, doesn't it? I, I, I know people who are very big fans of corduroy, so I can't really talk about this, but yeah. It does get a bad rap, but did it you does. know that the word corduroy comes from the French cord du roi, meaning cloth of the king? <gasps> really? Uh-huh. There you go. I, I know some nerds who are going to be so happy with that information. Yeah. I think the one that really I particularly like is that stewardesses is the longest word you can type solely with your left hand. Oh, my goodness. There you go. Okay, you know that's that? a good one. The thing that I would like to know is how do you research a book like, I mean, like seriously, who is this guy? <laughs> What's he been doing with his life that he knows that stewardesses is the longest word you can type solely with your left hand? People do that though. Like I met a guy the other Sounds day. Sounds like your kind of guy though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I met a guy the other day who has over, I don't know, however many years, um, collected 8,000 quotes. 8,000 quotes? About writing. About what? Oh. Yeah. Oh no, no. And I'm not sure if they're about writing, but they're just eight thousand quotes. Then, so and he's now creating a database where you can, you know, like look up quotes and stuff. Because there aren't any of those around. <laughs> anyway. Okay. His is particularly special. I look forward to seeing it. Are you going to share a link to that once it goes up? Oh yeah, for sure. Cool. Hmm. Is it just going to be called eight thousand quotes? Oh, I don't think so. I think because oh, he might like... eventually it'll be ten thousand. The rate he's going. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Got to leave room, right? Yeah. Go. What else we got? I don't know. <laughs> I think we're. I think it's time that we introduce our writer in residence because we're we're driveling, aren't we? Oh no, we're not. You know what we've got to introduce? I've got something much better than okay. that. Even. Um, I was reading Men with Pens, which is of oh, course yes. a fantastic writing blog, which is often found on you know the top one hundred writing blogs in the whole universe. Um, and there it is again, 100 Best Websites for Writers Award 2015 from the rightlife.com. So Men With Pens um, has put together a post here today that says uh, it's all about why you should create a series on your blog. And I, I read it with interest because much of what um, it, Men With Pens is written by James Chartrand, which is actually an alias for a a woman. Do you, yes, do you know called Louise. Yes. Louise, there you go. Um, so she was talking about um, the fact that creating a series on your blog can be your saving grace when your blog has become less of a joy, a daily joy, and more of something that you need to actually work on. Um, and I tend to agree with this because I find myself when I'm actually um, blogging regularly, which at the moment I have to admit I'm a bit hit and miss, um, I created some of my best work in series. So I had a series of Q&As. I did a series on social media for writers. I did a fantastic series on which was called Starting Out and which was um, 12 guest posters talking about how they started out in their particular um, 
section of writing. I did another one on the business of writing. And the main reason I did this was because I needed something to go on my blog every Friday. It was mm. that, you know, that was my mentality. But what it actually created for me was one of the most valuable database resources that I have for search engine traffic. And James suggests that this is a great reason to actually put a series together. Would you yes. agree with that? Do you think blog series are good? I think they're good. I think in, I've recently, I was going to start a blog series recently, but it's kind of become waylaid and I'll tell you why. Um, So I, you know, I just wanted to do something a bit creative and not just write about the same things. It was similar subjects all the time. And as you know, I've got an interest in photography and I have another podcast called So You Want to Be a Photographer. But not that long ago, I bought a fancy camera, this Canon 5D, um, and I thought, you know, I've got to do something with a purpose as opposed to take random pictures of my cats all the time because I've got oh. 10,000 or 20,000 of those. So <laughs> what my partner and I decided to do was do a blog series and start with the letter A and go to a suburb starting with A and do some photo essays right. and with some words to go with them. Mm-hmm. And then the next weekend, and obviously put that on a blog, and, um, and the next weekend we were going to go to a suburb starting with B. And do the photo essay and blog series and obviously next weekend starting with C and just go through the alphabet. So I would have had 26 in the series. So the, Where were you going to go for X? Well, I don't know. We would have okay. not done to that yet. Okay. <laughs> so we started this idea three weeks ago. So we went to the suburb with A, mm-hmm. and which was Avalon, mm-hmm. and um, fell in love with A and decided to move there. So oh. this, <laughs> we didn't get to B and C because we've been house hunting every weekend since. You're still in A, house hunting. <laughs> That's hilarious. So we didn't even get it onto the blog yet because we probably won't I don't get think this to is, B and I don't think this is how it's meant to work, Valerie. <laughs> I know. I think not. you're supposed to plan it. See, 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 I'm planning ahead for you going, what are you going to do when you get to F? <laughs> and you're still at A. I've got ADD. I'm easily distracted. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that once you actually get to B. Yeah, I might not. We might move to Avalon and just have lots of photos of Avalon. We might move to – you might go to B finally and go, oh, no, we should totally move here instead. I know. That's the scary thing, right? That's why I'm too scared to go to B because we might change our minds. Okay. Anyway, aside from that, a blog series can be a very useful thing. Yes. And um, this particular Men With Pens uh, post is a is a good place to have a look at why you should do one and how to introduce one. Oh, I, I – I will add to that now, I, I will, you know, now that contribute some seriousness to it, <laughs> is that you may remember that I did Vidtemba, which was kind of like a blog series, oh, yeah. which oh, yeah. except it was um, short, sort of like two-minute videos uh, in the month of September last year. And interestingly, I ended up getting an extremely well-paying gig um, from an organisation who have engaged me to uh, keynote for them. And they said they did it because of the blog series, because of Vitemba. Really? Yeah, because of the practical advice and practical stuff that I was um, providing in Vitemba. I, I laughed at you when you did I know. <laughs> oh, I take it all back, Valerie. See, you are a genius. I was shocked as well when they told me. <laughs> I I could never do a video series. It no. was it was very much out of my comfort zone. But anyway, let us anyway, move let's on. Anyway, let's move on. Yes. To our writer in residence this yes. week who I love. 
Um, Nicole Hayes is one of our presenters in Melbourne and she teaches creative writing for the Australian Writers' Centre and she has released her second book. Her first one is The Whole of My World and her second book is One True Thing. And it's about... getting mass reps. Oh, it's so good, you know, because... I've mentioned this to you, Al, when you're reading the books of people that you know, you know, people you respect a lot and are friends, it's a bit scary because you might not like it. But this got me in from the first minute. She really, it's about um, Frankie, who is a politician's daughter. And, um, you know, she's a teenager. So this is a young adult book. And I did wonder whether I would resonate with Frankie, because uh, Frankie basically, um, you know, discuss, what, what happens is photos surface of Frankie's mum having a secret rendezvous with a younger man, and there's a lot of fallout from that. And I have to say, from the first second, Nicole has captured the voice of Frankie perfectly. I didn't at any point feel, you know, am I, you know, is she real or am I reading this, you know, do I need to suspend disbelief? I got into it straight away. So, um, Here is Nicole Hayes. Nicole Hayes is an author based in Melbourne. Her latest book is One True Thing, a compelling read about a teenager, Frankie, who is dealing with the fallout of the scandal surrounding her politician mother. Nicole is also a creative writing presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre and her previous book, The Whole of My World, was shortlisted for the Young Australian Best Book Award and longlisted for the Gold Inky Award. So, Nicole, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited about your new book, One True Thing. Now, for some people who may not yet be familiar with you, can you please give our listeners an idea about what One True Thing is about? Sure. Uh, One True Thing is about a teenage girl, Frankie, who's forced to deal with the fallout of her politician mother's very public scandal It deals with the challenges facing young people, particularly teenage girls, in navigating the complicated worlds of social media, gender and sexuality. Um, There's also lots of music. Frankie is a budding rock star who incidentally hates politics. Mm -hmm. Maybe I don't know if it's despite or because of her mum's job. Uh, She has a fabulous best friend but who seems to be drifting away. There's a very cute boy who's an aspiring journalist who she might or might not be able to trust. Um, she's got an overbearing grandmother and an asthmatic little brother that she feels she has to protect. So she has quite a tricky path ahead of her as she deals with basically just having to go to school the next day after this very public scandal, um, which impeaches her mother and her father and their relationship. And how did you come up with this idea? How did this idea get sewn in your brain and then eventually find its way onto the pages of a book? That, that is, there's sort of two parts of that question i i've always been interested in uh, women in high profile positions and the way the media seems to often deal with them in in a very different way to how they deal with men um, politicians in particular i so that's always sort of been simmering along in you know in my mind as something i would like to write about um, it became sort of truer and m- somehow merged with this uh, a very public crime that happened here. I'm not sure if you heard about it outside of Melbourne, but there was a disappearance of a, of a, a successful businessman from very leafy, very middle-class, safe 
um, suburban streets. Um, well, that's where he, he came from. He was coming home from a business meeting overseas and effectively disappeared. And we had media, there were calls for information. I remember seeing his wife and his teenage daughter and son, um, you know, doing that sort of the missing person plea for help that they do with the police. Uh, you often see when somebody initially goes missing and and then gradually over a few days it's it really changed how it um how it came across and it it stopped being a, a cry for sort of information and started to shift into something more sinister as it became a, a homicide investigation and pieces of this man's life were uncovered and and unbeknown to his his family at all um and for to the police obviously from the beginning he had this whole other double life he was leading and there was very, you know, he was involved in uh, swinging, he had he had fake mobile phones, he had this very elaborate second life um, and it seems that he'd come to harm one of these uh, rendezvous had gone terribly wrong. And the, although this is not what my novel deals with, I remember my first instinct was, oh, God, you know, hard enough to lose the person you love but then to discover this about them I thought about his wife and how she would feel and then my very next thought was oh my god those kids how do they go to school tomorrow how how do they get up how do they face the world when they're teenagers you can't protect them from from the sorts of things other kids are going to say so not only do you have that grief and that feeling of betrayal that you don't even, you know, this this person in your life has been lying to you, but that also it has to be plastered all over the media. And you have no control over it, yeah. even though you're old enough to understand. So I was really interested in that teenagers, when they're, when they're really victim or vulnerable to their parents' choices, are aware of the implications and the fallout, but really powerless to do anything about it. Yeah. So, I mean, why is it that you are so fascinated by teenagers? Because Frankie is a teenager and she's quite a mm. complex teenager and your previous book was a young adult book as well. Um, what What is it that, that engages you about this age group? There's a big chunk of me who's still about 15 and a half and not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but struggles every time she looks in the mirror. I, I think there's some of that. I think Probably there was, you know, I think we've all had um, teenage years or teenage experiences that we'd like to revisit or have another look at or have another try at if, if, if only that were possible. Mm. So there's, there's some of that driving it, a, a sense of being able to take some control over at least this teenager's life in a way that I couldn't for my own. I'm also the mother of two daughters. Uh, one is 15 and the other's almost a teenager. She's almost 12. And so I'm you know, it's an easy place for me to go back to, but I'm also watching it unfold before me. So, you know, I don't see it changing anytime soon. I, I'm absolutely fascinated by those teenage years and and all the possibilities. And, and I think, too, the fact that today's teenager has such different and new challenges in a way that I didn't have, I it's just ripe for exploration. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly understand being really interested in the fact that today's teenagers have a very different world to grow up in and how they navigate that. But one of the things when you, reading your book, you really nail Frank. I mean, Frankie is 
believable from minute one and it's just so it's so real how do you and or what would your advice be too for other people who are doing this get that voice to, to be so real apart from because there's one thing to be interested in teenagers mm. there's another thing to be able to just nail that voice and make the reader truly believe that this is a 16 year old or however you know whatever old yeah right well first of all thank you that's that's fantastic to hear that it's it's still very new so i'm still kind of waiting for reviews for it so it's great to know that you felt like i got her voice oh, from minute one. Oh, fantastic mm. thank you um oh, look it doesn't come in the first draft that's for sure um <laughs> it really didn't um i have and i think it's inevitable if you're an older person writing from that age group occasionally that's mature wise um, even if it's the words, a teenager's words, having a very sophisticated understanding of the world is something it's very hard not to kind of weave through the story. So I do get, I have to pull that back. I have to allow her to sort of stumble along even when perhaps I'd like the mother voice to pop in and, <laughs> and you know, comment on what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I do fight that and it doesn't always, um, yeah, it, it generally comes out in revisions. But I do think... I, I just think I, I have a, a, a very powerful teenager inside of me that's still got something to say. So, but to, in terms of just the, the technical craft side of it, listening and watching teenagers um, around you in TV, uh, on TV and in movies, I think really that is absolutely the best way to do it. Reading other young adult stories, that, particularly the ones that resonate, you cannot do too much of that um, in terms of just getting that voice right if you don't feel confident in in uh, you know in finding it yourself that is a great way to do it and I check in with that all of the time when I feel I'm getting you know particularly I've changed the age group so my in the whole of my world Shelley was 14 and a very young 14 and it was set in 1980s Melbourne so there's a naivety that you couldn't get away with today um, so I had to check in with that a little bit and, and finesse that as I went along, which certainly happened in revision and with the help of, of editors later on. But, um, yeah, I, I do think reading and listening and I've got teenagers all around me, so I ask them stuff too, which is really useful. So just take us back a bit on to how you got into writing in the first place. Is it something that as a child you always wanted to become a writer or did you discover it later in life? Tell, tell us about how you got into it or got interested in it. Yeah, oh, absolutely when I was a child. Um, I think about the most powerful influences in my life apart from my family. It was probably characters and stories. It was books. Um, so I was a, a voracious reader and it I didn't really think you could, being writer was a job. Like yeah. I didn't know that's something you grow up to do, yeah. but I always wrote stories really um, just for my own entertainment. It was always my favourite exercise when I was asked to do that at school. It was a great opportunity for me to, you know, to really just get lost in a world. So, um, I, and all I did is is very poorly imitate the books I was reading <laughs> Um, you know, you can, there's the Roald Dahl and there's some Anna Sewell. You, if you read any of my stories from back then, and, and my dad did keep, my mum and dad kept some of them, you can just, you can almost identify what book I was reading when I was writing the story. But, um, but yeah, it was really that, that love of language. And I, I found out, uh, my father passed away some 20 years ago now, but I found out in my 20s that he had 
written two novels. Oh. Uh, yeah, and he was not the sort of person who had a hobby. So it really, two complete novels. Now, they weren't ever published. He didn't send them off. But he didn't idle. <laughs> he didn't do things for his own entertainment. So mm. the fact that he did that, I suspect from a very young age, I had that love of language instilled in me um, from probably from his influence. Um, and my mum was a, is a huge movie buff, a huge movie buff. She has rows of still VHS, bless her, um, <laughs> lining her shelves of her house. So, you know, we'd always talked about stories and were interested in stories. And I, and I just think it was a fairly natural progression from there. Mm. So you're always interested in stories, but, you know, as a child, but then you grow up, you become an adult and mm. you start writing these novels. Now, at what point did you feel comp- or did you realise that, that you wanted to write young adult? Did you experiment with different age groups or genres first and then feel comfortable in it? Or did you always know this was going to be your home? Oh, to start no. off with? Yeah, look, I didn't even know I'd written a young adult book until somebody else told me. <laughs> really? That's dead set truth. Um, the whole of my world had a, actually started life about 14 or 15 years ago um, under another title. And it, it was um, uh, my second manuscript. My first one was an adult story that just never went anywhere it's it's still there I'll, I might go back to it one day but um I wrote it just didn't it, you know it got some attention it got some I went to Varuna on the back of that first manuscript um and I don't know what happened I just started writing this second story that was really very close to my own story as a teenager um and something about that really stuck and I fortunately was able to go invited to go back to Varuna with this second manuscript and um, it was in the process of having people read that before I sent it off that uh, my very good friend Jackie Tomlins, who's a, a, a leading um, LGBTI advocate and a writer herself, who's one of my first readers for all of my manuscripts, said, rang me after she'd read it and said, oh, I didn't know you wrote YA. Uh. <laughs> and I said, oh, I didn't either. <laughs> Is that what I've done? Um, and so she said, you need to read these books, you need to read some YA so that you know what you're doing. And and really, once I realised that my voice in that first person narrator, which is what I've been choosing to use, yes. once I realised that that really lent itself to the teenager very readily, um, I embraced it wholeheartedly. Wow. So when you are writing your books. Let's mm. take, I suppose, um, One True Thing because that's the, been the most recent one. Do you – I know you had the seed of an idea with that incident in Melbourne, but mm. then do you just sit down and write and see what comes out or do you plot it all out and know that this is going to happen at all the various, you know, points in the structure? What's your way of writing? Oh, I wish I were a plotter. I wish, <laughs> wish, wish I could be – it's just not in me. I try to do it because it saves you so much time in rewriting and restructuring later on, but it just isn't me. So, you know, I'm, it's only my second novel, so maybe that's something that I can work on, but I suspect it's just the way it works for me and I have to trust it a little bit. Mm. I usually experiment with the voice first. Usually I just start writing, um, but... I only do that for a little bit and then I do try to force an outline, even a, just a very vague one, mm. some, before I get too far in. Mm. 
mm-hmm. uh, just because I need to know where I'm going. But generally the voice comes, that first chapter usually comes to me quite quickly once, you know, the, the general idea has come. Um, and then I force myself to, to outline then I go back into the writing. And Do you then... mean outline each chapter or outline, oh, the, sort of, outline the a vague story arc? Really like four or five key story beats for the whole thing and wow. that's as far as it goes. Yeah, I, I, I try. As soon as I try to do anything more detailed than that, I find the outlines turning into narrative and story and, you know, and, and it becomes a big mess. Um, so I have to keep it really bare bones. Having said that, I almost always know the ending. Ah, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I do have that even, and I might have even written the ending before I've got to the outline. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. I don't know why it works that way, but it does. So when you are writing a novel, do you, do you have some kind, is it the your primary activity at, at the time? Do you sneak it in between other things or do you go, here, this is, three months a a chunk of time I'm going to block out and I'm going to all I'm going to do is write how does that work for you what's what's your routine in a sense um all of the above (laughs) (laughs) really I uh look for the first novel it was absolutely stolen moments um I you know as I said I wrote that a long time ago the first version um redrafted and redrafted and redrafted and then set it aside for years literally years um before I came back to it but um, without having a publisher waiting for it, having written several other novel manuscripts that didn't sell, a couple of film scripts that were funded but didn't were never made, uh, I had become quite aware that this was not something that could replace mm-hmm. the work that I was doing um, and getting paid for, um, at least not then. And, and, and still now it's something that I, I, I set time aside now because I have a publisher who actually wants to read my work um, and deadlines and those sorts of things. But um, it's still very much a book-by-book proposition. It's a week-to-week proposition in terms of how I manage my time. Having said that, this last one I did have a very short turnaround and I had to make it my priority and it was brutal and hellish and just delicious as well just the the in the extravagance of simply focusing on that and treating it like work and not something that I had to squeeze into the corners the empty corners was delightful and terrifying so you had a quick turnaround for this because your publisher obviously said you know we're interested what exactly what did you propose to them? Was it just the idea? Uh, because obviously you hadn't written the whole thing yet. What what t- did you propose to them? Why did you think that they thought that this concept was a, a good one to back? You know, I actually did end up submitting a first draft to them before they agreed to anything. Okay. Um, so it was just more in terms of the whole of my world was doing reasonably well for a new book, um, for a debut and for YA when I'm not, you know, I didn't have any sort of um, reputation preceding me. So it was very much on the back of the story rather than my own profile that it managed to um, cut through in the way, you know, in the way that it did. It wasn't a huge seller, but it was, it sold, you know, in the thousands and that apparently is, is a good thing for a, a new author. Mm-hmm. Um so it really was more every time Zoe Walton at, at Random House was in Melbourne, she'd catch up with me and do the, what are you 
working on at the moment <laughs> thing. And I had this idea and I, I tested it out with her um, and she was very interested. And then I just couldn't get the ending right. So she wanted it at a certain time to, without a commitment to publish, understand that. Um, but it was, they do always, it, it tends to be once you get a, a deal with the publisher is that they have the first option to refuse yeah. on the next novel if it's in the same genre you know, or, or readership. So I knew that they'd read it first. It didn't mean that they would actually publish it, um, which does have an, a different kind of dynamic, I suppose, at play than when you are submitting with no expectations at all. Um, but I was just aware that time was was passing and she had wanted it to see it months and months ago and it still wasn't ready. So when we had the next catch-up, I said, look, it's a, a very rough early draft and I'm not comfortable with you seeing it. And she said, I can handle it, you know, <laughs> you know, please send it along. And so that was that was tighter than I wanted because I still, even when I had that conversation, the the ending that I had originally um, written was no longer working. Mm. Um, and I had to, or the idea that I, how I was going to end it wasn't working anymore. So this, this notion that I at least knew where, where it would go suddenly went out the window. Um, in the end, it did work, but it meant I had to do a whole lot of rewriting in the middle. And I guess that was my fear is that I, I could see where I was going, wasn't going to end where it needed to. But the really tight turnaround, so they, she read that first draft and fortunately um, saw enough in there to get very excited about it and, and to offer a contract. But then the very tight turnaround was in the revisions because it right. was an early draft. And I, it was really over Christmas, New Year, um, when I did the bulk of the significant restructure and revising, which I don't recommend to anybody mm-hmm. because it's Christmas. Um, yes. <laughs> I had a trip. Uh, I had my family from overseas visiting. I staying with us, no less. I it was really crazy. So there was no Christmas or New Year holidays for you. Oh well, I had to. Ha- I literally did. It, it didn't feel like it, but I really did have to pencil out those days and just block them out so that I could have them because my husband's family was visiting from America and they'd never been here. Twenty years we've been married and they've never been here and they were staying with us and we were going away with them. So. I just had to force it in those days leading up to that and then as soon as we got back, just do the, you know, waking up at 5 a.m., finishing at midnight, starting all over the next day. Mm. Um, and, you know, I've got kids, school holidays, not yeah. the best time to be doing that. So it, it was kind of, well, it was quite chaotic. It was incredibly stressful. It made me make difficult choices and it is so much better for it. Great. Um, even if I'm not, <laughs> I'm <laughs> not traumatised by it, but it was absolutely a better novel as a result. And so you start with this seed of an idea and you try and ex- you experiment with the voice first before you do a very, very, very skeletal, skeleton of an outline. How do you, where and when do you develop your characters? I mean, no doubt you had your main character in your head, but where and when do you, do you, do you flesh out and develop your characters? Do you kind of think of their backstory at the beginning? Do they emerge and appear as you start writing or do you vaguely know that they're going to exist? How does that work? Oh, the characters very early on. The character is usually, if the idea doesn't force the character, then the character forces the idea for me. Um, before I've written a word, actually I have a very strong sense of that character um I might or might not 
sketch things out, actually write it down. Um, if I don't straight away, I just start writing and then I'll stop. And, and the character definitely comes to me, comes alive for me very early on. Um, sometimes I just have to play with her voice. Like, and it's usually a female. I'm, I probably will write women, you know, or young girls as my main characters. I'm, I'm comfortable. That's probably always going to be my preference. But um, I, if I do start writing, it's usually to test out her voice as much as anything. Um, and to, and then I'll go back and, and play with the, some of the extra things, you know, her interests outside of the main story, um, her background and, and the things that are interesting or challenging for her. I do all of those um, character sort of notes as we go along, but first I get a strong sense of her voice and what matters to her most of all. Um, that's my, that's my page one. I have that happening. Let's get down to some practical aspects of, you know, where do you write? Do you have an office? Do you write in cafes? Do you use Word? Do you use Scrivener? Just sort of those sorts of things, the actual putting the words down. Yeah. What's the scenario there? Um, I, I am a big fan of the cafe. Really? Mm, I am. I, uh, one, because it has to be one that does not have Wi-Fi. Okay. Because <laughs> it's a constant battle um, to avoid getting distracted by social media, emails, all of the things. I'm finding now that um, I get work through Facebook. I get, you know, all different um, distractions come to me via social media. And so there's a part of me that's aware that I have to ans- answer those things. But there's also, you know, that, that does not work with the quiet time that you need to think mm. Um, something about the noise of a cafe, I'm very good at shutting it out. It doesn't make me feel so quite so alone, but still allows me to just segment off that time for myself. So, yeah, it's I, I'm a big cafe fan. In fact, I've realised, especially with these really intense revisions I did earlier in the year, I have to literally take my laptop first thing. It has to be the first thing I do disappear you know i've got a couple of favorite spots that are, they're very good at leaving me alone and i always make sure i spend money there so that i don't you know <laughs> so bad. that i don't feel like exploiting it because like, yeah. i appreciate that they leave me alone mm. but um and i if i can do two or three hours straight there um i feel really good i can usually get a couple of thousand words down wow yeah in in that time i if i tried to do that at home it'd take me seven or eight hours wow and so do you have a target, like a word count target for each session or anything like that? I try for the 2,000 a session, 2,000 words a session. That's, wow. that, that makes me feel like I've accomplished a good amount. Yep. Um, it might take a few hours or it might, like I said, depending on where I am. If my kids are home, I can't actually just disappear. So I might try to do that, but that's a whole day's work instead of a morning. Yeah. Um, but, you know, 2,000 makes me feel good. But if I hit 2,000 early, I'll keep going. I know some people don't like to, but I know that, you know, disaster can fall any moment, touch wood, and, you know, that I might lose the next three days to something else. Um, so I try to make the most of that. Um, I am a word writer. I, I, I would like to investigate more of the, um, the plotting and planning type software like Scrivener and I, I'm trying to think what the other sort of big one is. 
I haven't used them. I'd like to learn how to. I suspect I'll just keep putting that off though. <laughs> <laughs> you just said before that you get work through Facebook. What do you mean by that? Um, in offers, you know, to go to festivals or, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, really just opportunities to speak on panels, that sort of thing. Um, okay. even pitches for, for articles, occasionally an editor will contact me and ask me to write something. It's become a really, um, great tool where it comes, you know, in terms of raising my profile. Um, but yes, that added challenge of it being also a major distraction if I can't shut it off. So you have found social media useful in raising your profile as an author? Uh, I, I absolutely have. In, and Twitter is, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Twitter. When I, I, I do it in fits and starts. I'm not as consistent perhaps as I need to be, but I do enjoy Twitter and I've made a lot of um, friends, mm. which is, you know, particularly other author friends. And although I only kind of engage with them because of the friendship aspect, much of that has resulted in work and contacts and opportunities simply because we've become friends. Um, I suppose it's just a, a, it is just another form of networking, isn't it? But, you know, I'm not, I wasn't actually actively doing it for that reason. Um, I just felt very separate from other writers because I had been doing it on my own for so long. Mm. And I made a choice um, when the whole of my world was, I, I, you know, I wrote that book and I, when I finally did that revision, I just had a feeling it was going to cut through this time that I was actually going to get published this time after so many rejections. I knew yeah. that this rewrite was the one. Yeah. And I remember thinking now I need to engage with people. I need yeah. to learn from other people um, and just find out a little bit more about what how things work from people who are on this side rather than, uh, you know, from other writers really. And you know, it ended up being something that resulted in, I, I have no idea if I sold more books because of it or if I will sell more books before, because of it. Mm. Um, but that feeling of community that I've, that I've managed to cultivate as a result of, of, you know, social media, really just Facebook and Twitter for me, yeah. um, has been incredibly, um, it's, it's very satisfying. It's really um, emotionally and psychologically very helpful. Mm but it's also resulted in paid work. Yeah, right. Which That's I did not expect. Mm. So tell us why do you love writing? What is it about writing that is so appealing to you? I Yeah, we haven't got enough time for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll say simply it's something I can control. It's a world I can control. It is absolutely therapy for me. Um, not that I have great personal tragedy in my life or anything but you know we are always grappling for control of things I think and and you know with these stories I have some measure of control I can um make worlds that operate the way I want them to not initially because then there's no story but that ultimately there is some sense of resolution and some sense of justice and hope and it's a lovely escape for me because I you know that is something that I don't think we always get in real life interesting um, um, what you are one of our wonderful presenters at the Australian Writers Centre, and you teach creative writing at the centre. What do you enjoy most about teaching writing? Oh, the the people. There's no doubt about it. The the other writers that I meet um, who come along to the classes or aspiring. Some of them haven't written yet, but want to. Some 
did a long time ago um, but haven't for years. Some people just want, they have been writing on their own and they just want a sense of structure or some advice on how to, you know, do what is a very complex thing is to bring all of those ideas into something coherent and cohesive. Um, so the diversity of, of the faces and people that you meet in these classes, I, that wins over every single time. It, it's a lonely pursuit otherwise. And I think I, I will probably always teach um, as long as I, you know, people will have me. I probably will always keep it up. I'm, I'm not the solitary writer type that most people are. I'm really not. So it, it really helps me. But actually what I didn't expect to get out of it is it forces me to bring a consciousness to my own writing in terms of my processes and what works and doesn't. It's amazing. I think it's probably a little bit like, you know, when you're teaching someone to drive and you've picked up all these bad habits from <laughs> your own driving and you don't know that until you're forced to remember what, you know, what you were taught yes. um, all those years ago. And it it's made me a better writer. I have no doubt about it. Fantastic. So one true thing is out. So what's next for you? Are you working on your third novel? I am. I am. Can you tell us anything about it or what has inspired it or anything like that? Um, it's, it's a young adult novel. There's, a, there's a, uh, a young female who I haven't even named her yet, even though I know what she looks like and I know how she care, what she cares about. Her name hasn't stuck yet. But, um, and it's, but it's unlike my other stories, it's, not a, it's a rural type story rather than city. Oh. Both of mine were very much, you know, Melbourne or a Melbourne-esque kind of landscape for, yes. for the whole of my world and one true thing. This one, she's from a country, a small country town, and it's actually a survival story more than anything. So she's kind of stuck in the bush with her boyfriend and they have to, they've got major issues they're sorting out and something she's running away from. So, and that's all I can tell you because that's all I know. <laughs> I've written about 12,000 words and, and I haven't touched it in some time. So, you know, I'm really keen to get back at it, but I have to do a bit of publicity for um for one true thing first, yeah. but that's waiting for me as soon as I have some some quiet time. Well, that's very exciting. In the meantime, I have no doubt that one true thing thing is going to be a huge hit it's just such an awesome book and uh so listeners if you um want to go grab it from your local bookshop please do because nicole is fantastic she's such a talent and it's just an incredibly great read so thank you so much for your time today nicole thank you so much for having me and for your lovely words about my book there you go there was nicole what did you think fantastic yeah, she's great. Always good. I can't, I'm actually really looking forward to reading that one. As I said, I have seen it, mm. lots of people on social media talking about it, mm. um, which always, of course, piques my interest as someone who's, you know, constantly scanning the waves for such things. Mm. I can already see it as like a, a movie or a miniseries. Oh, mm. big call, Valerie. Mm, you know. Mm. Anyway, let's move on to our um, app pick for the week. And mm. our app pick for the week is Time Sci-Fi, so that's um, the word time, and then S for Sam, I F for Fred, Y dot com. Time Sci-Fi. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's a website, timesify.com and what you do, what happens is, you know, like sometimes you're in your workplace and you're reading something really you don't want people to see, like you're reading about Kim Kardashian's some, you know, latest uh, escapades, or you're reading about something that you just don't want people to see that you're reading crap or mm. trash. 
Hmm. Well, this hides embarrassing articles, you know, from places like BuzzFeed and your cat videos and stuff, and it gives them the appearance of being a New York Times article. (laughs) (laughs) So you just add this to your bookmark bar and you just click it and suddenly the page where you've got your cat videos and, you you know, you're, you're reading about Botox or you're reading about whatever, something naughty that you don't want people to see, it turns it into what looks like a New York Times article. So you're kind of hiding your reading view and you're making everyone um, think that you're very clever, that you're reading the New York Times. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yep. All right. If, yep. I'm glad I sit at home all day and no one gets to see what I read. I think that works best for all of us. <laughs> I'm sure this will help many people in many a workplace. I'm sure it will. Absolutely. You can thank That's us later. A, yes. Let us know if you use it and if it works for you. <laughs> but we have our working writer's tip comes from a question from Simon. So thank you, Simon, for sending in this question. And Simon has said that um, he's, he's asking for some advice. He says, I'm a freelance writer working in nonfiction and I'm working on my first novel. I write mostly and uh, I'm Sorry, I write mostly opinion and analysis, but I'm finding I need a little bit more work on the top to help pay my bills. I've been searching through a lot of the freelance writers' websites, seeking some corporate or other work that I could do in my spare time. However, it is quite a maze, and I'm a bit confused as to what is good and what would lead me down the wrong path. I know you've both got experience writing features and magazines and corporate work, wondering how you get those jobs. Where do you find places that want work, and how do you sell your wares? Um, and do, do either of us know, or someone who uses these freelance websites where you can bid for writing work online, are they any good? Uh, And he acknowledges this is a big question. That's a massive question. And I think you should answer it, Valerie. All right. (laughs) Thanks, Al. Over to you, Valerie. I think that at this current stage, no, those freelance websites aren't that useful if you want well-paying work. Those freelance websites are usually for people who are writing, you know, for very, very low rates and I don't use them. I don't know anyone who does use them. Um, I think they're used by, you know, people who are not necessarily writers but they want to earn some money on the side uh, from their writing and they're happy to be paid those lower rates but, of course, you get what you pay for. So they are often um, some organisations who don't mind the quality of the writing that they get in the end. So I do not use those freelance websites and I don't suggest that you do as well. My first big tip, if you want corporate work, which is what you've asked for, apart from don't use those freelance writers' websites, is to put it out there. What I mean by put it out there, is it in your bio? It drives me bonkers when writers say, oh, I'm trying to get corporate work, but um, there's nothing happening. And I go look at their bio on their Twitter, on their website, on their LinkedIn, and at no point do I see the words corporate writer or specialist in corporate writing. If you're not even going to put it on your bio, on LinkedIn, website, and Twitter, then how do you expect people to know that you are a corporate writer? Also, I would suggest if you have an area of interest, like you might be interested in health or sport or business or whatever, Mm. um, then you also put that as well because then the pharmaceutical and health companies can gravitate to you or Mm. the people who want business, uh, you know, business type uh, um, articles can gravitate to you. So I think you need to put it out there simply even in just in your bio, but also when you 
do communicate with people on social media, you know, mention it. You don't say, hey, I need some corporate writing work. You just, you, you can talk about the fact, you can retweet articles about corporate writing and put mm. your own spin on it. You can, you know, you need to position yourself as a corporate writer if you actually want corporate writing gigs. Mm. So that's the short answer, but um, hopefully that's useful. Do you and have, also, con- yeah. well, I would also say contact people. Yes. I mean, you know, it's, I'm often astounded by the number of people that will say, yeah, I want to be a writer and then expect people to find them. Yeah. People aren't going to find you necessarily. You know, you need to contact the, um, pu- you know, public affairs, communications sections of various, uh, you know, of any corporation that you're interested in working for, but also just lo- like talk to people around you, like talk to the networks that you have, let people know that you do it. Yeah. Um, I get a lot of my corporate work just from the fact that people know, like it's, 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 if not local, local to me, if you know what I'm saying. It's within my network and it's people that have businesses that know that I do it. And then I get website work from from other people that I've done websites for. And there's a word of mouth aspect to it. That, but you, you're not going to get the word of mouth if you don't actually let people know that you're doing it, that Absolutely. you're available for it. I was talking yeah. to uh, somebody who wanted to do more because she really loves homes and design and, you know, um, decor, that sort of thing. And she wanted to do more sort of corporate writing, but for the real estate industry, she wanted to mm-hmm. do some of those real estate um, mm-hmm. blurbs and that sort of thing, because she just loves that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you've got to put it out there. And she said that the next time she was at the school gate, yes, the when, school gate can be yeah, very useful. when somebody yeah. asked, um, she said it. And it turned out that person was the editor or deputy editor of a homes publication. You so, you know, you just got to put it out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be scared to put your hand up. I can think that's the, the key to it. For and sure. don't expect – you can't sit at home and wait for the phone to ring. It's no. like any kind of writing. You need to make calls, you know, make, make a move and yep. connect with people on LinkedIn and do all those things, all the stuff that you would do to, to get editorial work. You do that, but in mm. a different sphere. Mm. Yeah, if you're scared of picking up the phone, which you need to get over, um, yeah. connect with people on LinkedIn, even if they're smaller businesses, and say, you know, um, that, and mention that you're a corporate writer as well, because you might not get IBM straight away if you've had no corporate writing experience. But yeah. if you start with a smaller organisation and then you can show that you can write beyond opinion and analysis, yes. then then that will show people that – because corporate writing gigs – Often they don't want pe- they don't want opinion and analysis. They want straightforward, objective writing and information and third person. Yeah, third you person. Know, I don't understand why third person has gone out of fashion like no. it has because it's an incredibly useful source of income to any freelancer. It's to, the biggest source of income to write a, a, a sensible third person story about a subject. Yeah, like, yeah. For anyway, sure. Don't get me started on that. Okay. Because I might start talking in first person. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to travel writing has come to Perth. Uh, congratulations, Perth, everyone no in Western Perth. Australia, because, um, yeah, we're bringing travel writing, the travel writing course, to Perth, and that's being taken by our WA State Director, Alicia Hancock, who has done countless travel articles herself and is really well-placed to um, teach travel writing. So it's, it's going to be very exciting. We've had a lot of people in Western Australia ask for the travel writing course to come to our Perth Centre, and um, just look it up on uh, the writerscentre.com. So, sorry, on the Writer's Centre website, which is writerscentre.com.au. 
And if you're not in Perth, then yes. you can also do it in Sydney and Melbourne or you can do it online with the fabulous Sue White. So yes. Lots of That's options. That's true. That's yes. true. Lots and lots of options. So um, sign up for the Writer Centre newsletter and you'll be able to receive those notifications. But you've got a newsletter as well, haven't you, Al? Well, I do. And the reason, yes, and I um, was sending one out this week. I just realised today that it's I've actually, I'm actually due to send one out this week, so I'd better get on to that. <laughs> um, so if you would like to receive my monthly newsletter, you should sign up for it on my website at alisontate.com forward slash newsletter. Um, I basically just write you a little letter every month just to let you know what's going on. And I like to share lots and lots of the various writerly links, tips and advice that I come across in my many, many travels on the internet. And before we sign off, we want to give a big shout out to Mikhiller12, who has written a lovely review for us on iTunes. And one of the things she said, or he has said, is um, even though I'm new to the industry, I found myself equipped to have conversations about publishing, the future of publishing, the value of editors, marketing your book, technology and writing and more. I listen to this podcast on my phone while I'm exercising. And I always embarrass myself by laughing out loud at the girls' jokes and humor thanks for making my workouts more fun <laughs> I, I loved you know what I almost feel like because you're working out listening to us that we are by the value of osmosis also working, working out, out yeah speaking to you yeah totally oh which reminds me Valerie <laughs> uh-huh. before we go I yeah. have to ask you a question go on so when I did my little course on the weekend yes um many of the people in the course listen to our podcast regularly so hello to everyone hello everyone um, who was at my course on the weekend um and they want to know, Valerie, and yeah. this question came up yeah. from several sources, mm-hmm. how's your seven-minute workout going? <laughs> I, seriously, I, I laughed. I was laughing. So I was just like, you know what? I'm pretty sure that she's done that twice and only because we reminded her. So how's your seven-minute workout Well, going, I think Valerie? you're pretty accurate in that I did do that twice. It's a bit like getting ADD and getting stuck on A with Avalon, isn't it? I just – so – what I've done now is I went and uh, it was six days ago, I went back to this really full-on training that was way more than seven minutes. It's an hour and um, at an the hour? gym at the gym, and I could not walk for the next five days. I couldn't go up and down stairs or get in and out of the car unless I took half an hour each time. <laughs> Oh, you better go back to seven minutes, though. I know. It's like Seriously. all or nothing, you know. And so, or we can just have Mick do it for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 If the more of, more of you will work out while listening to the podcast, yeah, yeah in my then The benefits, we will get the benefit. We mm. will reap the benefits of that, I reckon. But if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it really helps us with the rankings and we can keep bringing this to you, which we love to do. So thank and if you, you have everyone. An, if you have a question, even if it's only how's your seven-minute workout going, Valerie, <laughs> um, you know, you should email us because we, we love to get your questions. Yes, email podcast at writerscentre.com.au. And, of course, you can find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. And if you want to shout us out on social media or connect with us on social media or ask us a question on social media, please do. Alison, where do we find you? You will find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, T-A-I-T. Um, you'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And uh, you might even occasionally find me on Pinterest pinning away. So, <laughs> so. And you'll find me, Valerie Koo, on 
Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, everything. I like the way you're so sensible in that you are the same everywhere. I wish I'd had, you know, five years ago when I was doing all this stuff and just adding to it piecemeal, I wish I had thought to just go, I need to be the same everywhere. <laughs> so, you know what, if you're setting up your social media accounts as a new, you know, if, you, if you're putting your platform together, mm. be the same on every single one. Absolutely. Be Alison Tate or be Valerie Koo or be yes. I Am A Writer, whatever you are. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you next week. We do. Bye. <laughs>